And welcome to another edition of the Beer Bonnet Podcast. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Jeff. Uh, we're down in Studio South. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, Studio B. <laughs> HQ Annex. <laughs> and down for two reasons. In the basement of my house, it's also South Portland. So That's right. And you lectured me before about... Which ways are which? Which is down? That's and right. Which is we up. went up to Seattle. That's right. Which is a perfect segue to mention that this is part three in our three-part Seattle beer podcast. There's the cat of the pod now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a the, the Southern uh, HQ has a lot of animals. There's a lot of animals, <laughs> and they like to make themselves known. Uh, so yeah, so this is part three in the in our in our our our, our uh, triptych of seattle podcasts um nice (laughs) uh but before we get into that uh, i should introduce you you are jeff allworth author of the beer bible cider made simple and secrets of the master brewers correct all right got that i don't have a script in front of me so i gotta wing it uh you also uh are the author of the beervana blog and uh tweet at at beervana you are uh patrick emerson Economics professor at Oregon State University. Okay, good. So far. So far, so good. Um, that all checks out. And you uh, tweet at Beeronomics. Beer yes, sorry. I got, got distracted halfway through that. that Beeronomics. That is correct. All right, now I'll cut that out of the way. <laughs> uh, so we, we, we were going to record all three podcasts in one night, but we, we ran out of steam. Got a little too much beer in us. Yeah. So this is a week later. We get to reflect a little bit. That's right. Uh uh, are we recording this? Uh, all of our uh, three Seattle podcasts happened over a two-day period, but that was a few weeks ago. We're back in Portland. Uh, today's uh, podcast is going to feature Fremont Brewing, where uh, where we visited and had a nice uh, a nice time looking around and, and hanging out. Um, but before we before we get into uh, to our long form interview uh, with Matt Linscombe at Fremont Brewing, uh, we should tell you a little bit more about our trip. Yeah, we got an email from somebody who had listened to our first podcast saying, "Hey, I would like to have had more uh, more sense of your your experience in Seattle. What's Seattle look like? Where we, do you go? What do we, you do?" Yeah, we like to leave listeners always looking wanting more. <laughs> it's good. It's good. <laughs> That's right. After our oh, wait, not that more. <laughs> more info. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah. So, um, actually, uh, we get a little a little uh, northwest centric around here. We kind of forget. Um, our audience sometimes. So uh, for those of you not intimately familiar with the Pacific Northwest, uh, Seattle and Portland are um, divided by uh, uh, about a three-hour uh, car ride. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what, 150 miles, something about. So we're 150 miles south of Seattle. Uh, we are a river city. We're inland. We're not on the coast, although near the coast. Um, and Seattle is a coastal city in the sense that they're on uh, the Puget Sound, which is... Uh, a uh, body of water connected to the Pacific Ocean, right? Both both uh, seaports, however, both seaports. <laughs> <There's> a, <laughs> we've we've chosen a moment when the cats have decided to go a little bit nuts. So um, <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> enjoy the background. Uh, Verisimilitude. Yeah, uh, Seattle is uh, a gorgeous city, uh, somewhat reminiscent of um, San Francisco in that the downtown area is very hilly and overlooks the the Elliott Bay. Um, so it's quite picturesque and lovely. We were there for a two-day period in December, so it was typically gray and rainy, right? Um, which is lovely. And uh, right around the solstice, so it's had fewer hours of light than it will any other time. We ended up staying downtown right across the street, essentially, from uh, the Seattle Public Library, which, to my great astonishment, you had never 
even heard about, let alone visited. Rem Koolhaas. Rem and Koolhaas. And made a cool house for books over there. It is pretty spectacular. Uh, it was a, a, their central library. It was rebuilt in, I can't remember, mid-90s, right? Uh, later. Late 90s, early 2000s? I think it's a, I think it's a new century. But Okay. Uh, anyway, not too long ago. Um, it's spectacular looking on the outside and even more interesting on the inside, I would, I would say. Um, so we got to tour that. That was fun. Yeah, just to go back to Portland, Seattle, I will say... Um, Portland is, uh, it's interesting, there's a famous um, urban historian here in Portland named Carl Abbott, and he contrasts river cities and, and uh, ocean cities in that river cities are, tend to be more insular and inward looking, mm-hmm. and he has described Portland as being um, a city that looks toward the uh, Columbia Basin. And it was often a focal point for extractive industries flowing through Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, we were kind of aware of the the context of the Pacific Northwest that we lived in, and highly agricultural town. Whereas Seattle looked out, it's a port city, um, and like other port cities, is more cosmopolitan and sophisticated. And in the in the context of the beer touring that we were doing, I think a lot of uh, the differences can be described somewhat by that that distinction, that insularity creates a parochialism which means you're much more excited about your local stuff so you're a bigger booster for your local you know breweries and wineries and coffee shops and all that stuff which is totally characteristic of portland whereas seattle is uh excited to be on the pacific rim it's a more international city um it's more diverse city you have more beer wine food coming from around the world influences uh from all over the the Pacific Rim. So it, these, these are characteristics that kind of distinguish what otherwise are fairly similar cities. Yeah. I don't know. I can't really speak to his larger thesis, but for these two cities, I think that's fairly apt. Uh, Seattleites might disagree, but, uh, I think Seattle is more interested in being sort of, uh, uh, a, an important city, uh, nationwide as, and Portland's very provincial. I think Uh, Mm -hmm. we're very inward looking. Um, uh, I've argued on this podcast before that I think actually that uh, plays into sort of the artisanal cult- culture that exists in Portland. There's a real sort of DIY artisanal craft uh, scene here uh, through lots and lots of different industries and uh, products. Um, but I think that definitely um, helps support the the local uh, craft beer uh, uh, scene. And one of the things that we'll mention actually in this interview and <clears throat> we can say in general is that there are just um, amazing number of tiny little breweries in Portland. So, uh, little breweries we we can support hundreds of <laughs> maybe not hundreds, but a hundred some uh, little breweries around here. And I think Seattle has many fewer. I'm not sure how much the culture, but there really is this very intense uh, uh, artisanal um, culture here, and people will try and they will seek out uh, new and small and 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 interesting. Uh, um, new craft beer, so, um, so I think that's a bit of a difference. Though, if you're coming from someplace like, uh, you know, Cleveland or Boston or someplace like that, they look quite alike. You would you'd have a hard time distinguishing them if you didn't know them. You know, <clears throat> true. These are these are small distinctions that people in these two cities would acknowledge, but are hard, a little bit harder to see outside the Pacific Northwest, from about the city of Eugene, which is south of Portland, up to. Uh, British Columbia mm-hmm. is all the cities along there uh, have a lot in common. So it's yep. kind of a there's you know Portland has more in common with uh, with uh, 
Vancouver, BC, probably than it does with Bend um, in terms of the way it feel, looks and feels and functions. So that 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 little western uh, east, the west side of the Cascades area is very. There's a real similarity. So that's why we call have continued to call Seattle our sister city. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the day that we visited uh, Fremont Brewing, we um, we mentioned before we. Uh, went back and visited Cloudburst uh, uh, Brewing in the morning. Um, then we went and had a lovely lunch at... No Anchor. No Anchor, thank you. <laughs> uh, no script. I knew there was something with an anchor. Uh, I was about Good to say, job. dropped anchor. Uh, <laughs> lost anchor? No. <laughs> uh, at No Anchor, which is a lovely little beer bar. Yeah, it, um, it's a really cool place. Quite small, but really well regarded. Uh, we found it Googling around. Yep, a very nicely curated beer list. And... Um, Really excellent food. Yeah, I had this amazing wild mushroom hash, which was one of the best things I've had in recent memory. <laughs> wild mushrooms were just insanely good. Yeah. Which we got a lot of mushrooms up here. This rain makes good mushrooms. So yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good Northwest dish. Yeah, um, yeah uh, very knowledgeable staff and um, uh, really excellent food. So so that was a good stop. Yeah, the woman uh, who poured us our beer had a, a commons on tap and at that point the commons was already out of business and she gave us i can't remember what she told us about the commons but she told us something about the commons i didn't know <laughs> that's right she's very impressive like some you know something that's happened with their brewery right. um so uh, she is clearly very clued in and that's a great place great food and great beer so if you're in seattle certainly worth a stop yeah so a little little recommendation there uh <clears throat> Uh, what else do people want to know about our trip? Uh, well, one, one of uh, the the email I got requested that we learn uh, to, to learn where we got our coffee, and I was embarrassed about it. Because you were not. Yeah, I. Dra- you're, 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 I you're wasn't shameless. embarrassed, and I'm the one who dr- who, who drug you that dragged you there, dragged you there uh, uh, to Starbucks. One of the reasons because I had a, a little Starbucks gift card in my wallet, but uh, uh, yeah, that's because you went. wanted an eggnog latte. Come on. Broadcast your shame, my friend. That's, <laughs> uh, that's right. That was my uh, my guilty my secret guilty pleasure. No longer a secret. Uh, uh, I I indulge in, in in two or three around the holidays. My eggnog latte. I'm a big eggnog fan. So there you go. We didn't do a lot of coffee drinking. We were there. And for and, and so and to, and to be clear, why Starbucks? Because I've tried eggnog lattes at other places, and they can be wildly crazy, like really heavy and gross, or too sweet or something. So at least I know what I'm going to get at Starbucks. They do it a good egg, not a lot. So uh, there you go, Starbucks. You're yeah, welcome. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Besides, we're in the birthplace of Starbucks. It was appropriate. I guess that's true. I just have to say, I disassociate myself with anybody who drinks eggnog lattes, just so we're clear. I'm too snobby for that. Oh, okay. So should we end the podcast now and be done with this? <laughs> Are we done? <laughs> it was nice knowing you, Jeff. <laughs> Hey, you're too snobby for uh, me because I don't decant my beer. See, so. this is the difference between young Patrick and middle-aged Patrick. Because middle-aged Patrick doesn't care about his foibles anymore. Yeah, I like, don't really either. I drink eggnog lattes from Starbucks. Yeah, deal with it. Uh, I, I do like good coffee, and maybe maybe someday I'll have a coffee pod. But this is not that pod. <laughs> That's our other pod. <laughs> Adventures in coffee. That's right. Uh, you can be the snobby purist, and I'll be the adventurous uh, corporate guy. Okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, after our no anchor, <laughs> not Jeff Martin, <laughs> after our no anchor lunch, uh, we made our way to uh, Fremont, and there was two places we could have gone. One was the original Fremont Brewing Company uh, in Fremont. Right. Uh, 
or their brand new production facility in Ballard. Uh, Bare, the, barely in Ballard. Uh, barely in Ballard. One block over, apparently. Uh, we'll talk about that in the in the interview. Um, I kind of I, I kind of regret not at least uh, stopping by the the Fremont place. It, yeah, I do too. Because we it's the one, the one place where we didn't drink. We, we we had one beer when we were there, but we didn't really taste through a lot of their beers. So yeah. So the big production a, facility doesn't have a, a, a tap room, a taste. They have a whole a whole. Uh, place in their old in the original place so what i was saying is i regret not going to the original place because we went to the brand new one because we wanted to see what they were up to and what's what's what what's cooking these days uh yeah there was tons of beer around yeah <laughs> we actually didn't end up drinking it's, it's, it's an interesting trip um and in fact we didn't end up talking that much about i know beer. yeah so we'll, we'll, re- we'll rectify that a little bit by we'll we'll uh we'll split up the interview we'll break in a bit and we'll we'll taste a couple of their beers the um yeah just and we can get started on that i'll just want to say one comment about that new production facility which we do reference in the interview uh is that it's giant uh it's one of the biggest uh, craft breweries i've seen the the footprint is probably as large as the widmer brothers footprint it's just it's just a giant space yeah um they have a big new hoopmon brewery there and <clears throat> with space to expand the, lots of so much space to expand we'd be walking around and we'd walk from one ginormous room into another ginormous room that's empty because mm. it's like waiting to you know for expansion so right um and right in the middle of seattle right right which is not a cheap place to to, to do business so we'll talk about all of that yeah uh okay i guess without further ado shall we um take leave it to uh matt linscombe at uh fremont brewing let's do it all right so why don't we get started uh we are here uh with matt linscombe are you related at all to uh Tim? Yes. <laughs> no. Other than the fact that people ask me all the time. Yeah, of course. Sure. And I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan <laughs> of Tim Linscombe's. Uh, but no. Okay. No, not familiar. Maybe in some distant connection we are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But if you'd like me to get you some tickets, <laughs> give me some money, I'll help you out. Okay. Yes. That's I'll interesting how that works, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and we're at the Fremont Brewery here in uh, Seattle, Washington. Um, what did you call this this district? Uh, Freelard is what people call it. Freelard. Between uh, Ballard and Fremont. Um, so, why don't you give us a little bit of background about Fremont and your your history? And you uh, you came you came at brewing slightly different than than some of the other folks who come into brewing. So, give us your background. Well, everybody comes into brewing with their own unique story. It's part of the fun of this. I call it the you know island of lost toys, the craft brewing uh, brewing community. Everybody has some funky story. Um, and most of us are here because we weren't cool and didn't fit in in other parts of the world. Uh, so it's the island of lost toys. That's um, funny because brewing is now the coolest thing to do. So. It's kind of cool, yeah, but it's kind of like tech without the money. Um, you know, <laughs> kids who are like home with their friends playing poker during prom, you know, are now like cool, mm-hmm. um, but still not really cool. Right. Yeah, game, <laughs> I'm a little bit cool. of a gamer. Gamers are cool now. They were not cool when I was. Gamers there. are not cool, man. I know. I know gamers are really cool. Now. I, I know. We're having our moment. I'm waiting for the D&D crowd to come back up. They're coming back. But yeah. we're getting way off track I'm not here. so sure of that. Uh, yeah, I, lo- so I love getting off track. <laughs> we're going to we're just hopefully stay off there. But, uh, okay, so I came into this as a third career um, from homebrewing for 15 years, being an environmental activist for 11, um, and then an attorney. It's kind of like the lost years. Um, I don't know what happened. I fell, hit my... <laughs> 
my brother in Boston who owns Turtle Swamp Brewing out of Jamaica Plain, actually. Oh, oh. yeah. It's a family, uh, yeah. family affair. He left a career as a biochemist for the Lou Gehrig Foundation, ALS Foundation. Uh-huh. Um, so it's a family full of bad judgment. Uh, <laughs> and I left a law career <laughs> to start this brewery. Wait a minute, who started theirs first? I did. Okay. Yeah, right. I'm so the little brother. The little model. Yeah, right. the little brother always says things first and best <laughs> for any of those who are listening. I'm the little brother. I yeah, think it's right. Yeah, you're, you're that's a, a good point to make at all times. Uh, so I started this uh, in sold a first beer in 2009, um, right as the economy had collapsed. Um, no investors, no credit cards, no money, um, no brewery actually, um, and built this thing up. Uh, the stone soup. If you know that story, the stone suit model, piece by piece by piece. I get one guy to give some money and then go to another guy and say, hey, you don't want to you know, miss out on this. And then at some point, we had enough folks, and they were given ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 each, not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, I was to flip the whole, able to flip the narrative and say, hey, you know, uh, you don't want to be the only fool in this boat, so you better get some friends. Uh, <laughs> it's this shit show that we call the start of Uri, as the economy was like, you know, we had 11% unemployment, yeah. Washington Mutual just collapsed, and it was right. it was brutal around here. Um, and nobody was starting a business, much less a brewery, which is a stupid thing to do. If anybody remembers 2008, 2009, this was not a cool trend at the time. Um, it was soon thereafter from when I started selling beer that it began to take off in a serious way out here. But it was not something that people did at the time. And it sure was not something people would lend money to. Um, so we just built it up piece by piece, used piece of equipment by used piece of equipment, <clears throat> investor by investor. It took me six months adding all this stuff. Finally, I had enough fools on the boat. Um, I had a complete brewery with two uh, fermenters. I got from George and, uh, from uh, Manny and Roger at Georgetown and uh, started making beer. So you told us there something when we were walking around the brewery a minute ago, that there, you were the sixth brewery in uh, Seattle when you opened up in 2009. Operating brewery at the time, yeah. Which is shocking to me. I mean, Portland had 20 breweries by 1992 or something. I mean, I, I, and, you know, Seattle is is associated with beer, so that's kind of shocking to me. It seems like that must have given you a little bit of leg up. There weren't, there weren't that many breweries here then. Well, that's an open door to talk about a lot of things <laughs> different between Oregon and Washington. Um, first of all, that's one of the ways, one of the many ways Oregon is better than Washington, I think, which proves the cultural dominance of Portland over Seattle. <laughs> Great. Any of Jeff's listeners, there's point of evidence, number one. Um, Sorts of pandering happening here. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly different tenor than we heard earlier. Um, where Oregon was coming in for a little help. <laughs> yeah, well, that's part of the fun. Yeah. Sibling rivalry. Um, yeah, so, yeah, but we had a lot. What's interesting, if you want to compare more of the systems, um, the, the two different states and the brewing histories, a lot of our breweries have gone up and sold. So, Seattle Malting Company. Like you guys had, okay, you go back in time. You had the Henry Weinhardt's company. Now, some of you may be old enough to remember that, but it actually was a large force in Oregon beer mm-hmm. for a long time. And you guys had Rainier. And we had Rainier. Yeah. But Rainier went away. Right. Weinhardt stayed in Oregon. Ours went away. Um, you guys had, obviously, Widmer. Um, and then Widmer bought our other brewery like that, Red Hook. Red Hook went away. We had... Uh, pyramid, you had full cell, full cell state. Pyramid went away. We have this history, which is really interesting, of breweries getting to a certain size, and then re- removing themselves from the state, from production in the state of Washington, <laughs> um, which is different. So you built it up. Is different. Oregon's built up this culture. From, I mean, Weinhardt was a great, great brewery from a brewer's perspective. They were incredible brewers, great systems, taught a lot of people, 
um, instilled professionalism in the industry and um, you know quality analysis of the grains and the hops, etc. It was a very integrated brewery, um, and that. that led to you know the same philosophies through Widmer which has been a, a great leader in the brewing industry in Oregon and then Deschutes taking that next state. Uh, the Washington history is really I think it's, it's a fun history um, it goes I love beer history so I can go on and on and on about Washington beer history or Oregon beer history or Texas beer history. Did you guys know also but, that Spinnakers in Victoria um, had a, a pub a brew pub uh, kind of I think in the U district area Yep. Way back when. Back um, in the day. And closed it down also. I don't know what prompted that. but So for fans of the pod, uh, that disembodied voice was Ben Keen, editor of Beer Advocate, who's joined us here, uh, giving us a little wisdom there. A little history about, <laughs> yeah, Spinnakers. Yeah, well, it's all intertwined, you know, Spinnakers out of, of B.C., right. uh, which is a great brewery, great brew pub. Mm -hmm. Been there for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but, you know, there weren't a lot of breweries that are operating um, – in well, production breweries, mm -hmm. so I want to clarify. I wasn't talking about brew pubs. I was oh, talking okay. Production breweries. Okay, so brew um, pubs. But that's, brew pubs are also there's another difference. Not a doesn't seem to be nearly as big a deal in Seattle as they are in Portland, where they're they're just legion. And that's law. In Oregon, you it, the reason is the law pushes that way. Right. We can have a tasting room, serve all the beer on site, and have no food, and I can have kids. So oh, we're all yeah. ages, dogs, children, everybody. It's a community gathering spot at our tasting room. Um, just named the most popular bar in the uh, Seattle metro area by Lyft. Oh. We're the number number one bar destination, quote-unquote, for Lyft this year. Oh. We got a Lyfty, which is kind of cool. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So um, Matt is pointing to the Lyfty, It's a, you can't see. Yeah, it's a Lyft sign, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, but, yeah, and the difference is in Oregon, uh, if you do that, you have to be 21 and over, which cuts off a lot of your audience. So people just have food, and then you can make your choice. Yep, right. So that is specifically by law. Huh. Uh, which is a whole other aspect of how the whole stupid regulation of uh, alcohol manufacturing, which right. influences our microeconomies. Mm -hmm. And which are different in every state. So Every state. Yeah. Yeah. Thank so, God. Yeah, right? For so, that, uh, keeps it fun. <laughs> so you founded it in 2009, yeah. and you, when we were taking a tour, said something uh, that you had some, there's something, an interesting approach you have here at Fremont. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, well, I... Uh, Yes, I'd love to. Um, we think it's interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's interesting to anybody else. <laughs> um, but we think it's interesting. Uh, so the idea is it's the um, triple bottom line, right? So when we established the business, there was coming from environmental, um, and my wife's a PhD in anthropology and women's studies, and you know, coming at it from a, a political and an activist perspective, um, the idea of being business owners was uh, a little bit silly to us, um, just because we've never seen ourselves as you know business people. Um, so uh, we had we put in this in, into place this triple bottom line. So it's be good to um, your employees, you know, be good to your beer, but be good to your um, your employees, your community, and your environment. So um, the triple bottom line is founded on the first principle of sustainability, which is profitability. Um, and that's pretty standard, and that's, you know, we've been uh, successful over the nine years we've been in business by, I believe, you know, running a um, tight, efficient, quality-driven brewery, um, focusing on the fundamentals. Um, but the, that allows us to pay attention and spend a lot of our money on the triple bottom line, so it's taking care of our employees, our community, and our environment. Um, on the employee side, we offer vastly above industry wages um, from the first year. Um, since the first year, we've offered um, health care. It's almost completely subsidized. Um, we used to do 100%, but 
we found that the usage rates were higher when we made people buy in. So now it's ninety percent, or it costs you twenty bucks a month to buy in. And just that little bit allows people to actually use it more, which is the point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's essentially free healthcare, mm-hmm. um, vision, dental. Um, you, uh, life insurance plan is part of that. Um, we have a four hundred one k with a three percent match, which we're raising um, next year uh, in two thousand eighteen. We're rolling out a. Um, <clears throat> Family application for healthcare coverage. Um, so, if you work at Fremont Brewery and you're a full-time employee, and 95% of our people are full-time, um, then your family and your children, your spouse and your children, are covered under our policy, uh, under 50% coverage. So we can't afford 100 yet, but <coughs> we're working toward 100. It's not what our industry does. Um, yeah, talk a little bit about that. This is a thing that people don't talk about. Um, it's a touchy subject because yeah. you don't want to point fingers because every business is different and so uh, it's funny to talk about in this context where I don't want to point fingers I don't think we're better well you can talk about this is just part of our philosophy what do we do we pay above the industry wage yeah so what is the industry wage so if you're a a line a line brewer what is I don't have no idea what a you know if you were a production brewer what would you make or if you're working a keg line or something it depends on where you work Um, so larger breweries typically you're able to pay more Uh Um, brew pubs have a different, you know, sure. financial base. Um, so it, it just really depends on the size of the brewery we're working with. It also depends on the philosophies of the owners. So, um, you know, and it's hard to answer that question of what is like prevailing wage because most of these are private companies. Right. And this is why it's hard for me as a writer to figure this stuff out. What yeah. About, so what? A, a range. A range. What we did was put. We called up people who work at all of our benchmark breweries okay. mm-hmm. in the northwest uh, and then some down the west coast uh-huh. and just ask salary ranges uh-huh. um, and I called everybody from owners and to brewers right. and I had a team of three and we went out and called basically everybody we knew um, who were working at breweries uh, it's a pretty significant pool of breweries we're able to pull from and um, the breweries that are able to pay, pay more than us are much 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 larger mm-hmm. um, but not all of them size does not equate to necessarily increase in pay um, so without getting into the numbers, um, as far as like what do we pay versus somebody else, which I think is... We don't want to out you on that level. Yeah, well, I don't mind being outed. Uh, I just don't want to out somebody else. But uh, we pay above industry wage, well above industry wage. Uh, and the philosophy there is, um, you know, I just think that we should all pay more at the end of the day. Um, it takes money out of specifically the my pocket um, and you know, my wife's pocket. But... The point is to work in an environment where we're meeting that triple bottom line, and that has to be baked in from day one. Mm. So pro- for us, success is we have our metrics. Do we meet the triple bottom line? Um, and if we're below industry average on any one of our wages, we have not met that triple bottom line, so we've failed to reach goal for the year. And that's part of the philosophy. It's part of the blood of this, this brewery. The second thing is do we take care of our community? Um, we give away a vast amount of money and beer and support community organizations. From well, every year, just from you know school donations to donating to our principal categories, um, and for us, it's you know principally focused on the environment, and the outdoors, um, and our local communities, and then uh, social justice organizations. Um, so a lot of it is you know around homelessness for us and um, gay and transgender LGBTQ issues, um, and counseling and housing and all kinds of resources for. Organizations that support that, so those are priorities for us, and we support it with special beers that we do. We donate the proceeds back to those um, those uh, breweries, 
or those organizations. Um, and then the beer giveaways and the product giveaways and the sponsorships and all that kind of things we do. That's a part of our triple bottom line. Um, we also sponsor beers like our Hops for Heroes project, the um, beer that we uh, started with Chris Ray, who's now in Virginia, at Center of the Universe, or Kotu Brewing. Um, and it's now a national uh, beer release on Memorial Day, and the proceeds go to Soldiers Angels, which is a group that supports um, serving members of our military and their families with pretty much anything you want. You need a ride to the doctor, you need a birthday gift for your kids, your spouse is deployed, um, need some dinner, Angel's there to help you out. Um, and we have breweries lined up around the country from Stone to Left Hand to Cigar City, all around this kind of, uh, the United States. Biggest supporter is St. Arnold's down in Houston, Texas. Um, and breweries are you know part of this program, and we've raised almost a half million dollars so far um, for you know, military members and their families. Um, that's part of our second take care of your community, measurement of the triple bottom line. Um, and you know the third part is the environment. So what we do with that is we, uh, coming from, I'm first generation to be born and raised off a farm in my family. Uh, and we still have land up in North Texas. Um, I've always focused on farmers. So we have a six and a half acre organic um, hop farm over in Yakima that we cooperatively farm with um, a couple of the key hop families, the oldest hop families in the Yakima Valley. And that's a research um, research farm. We make our beers, the exclusive hops, we get the exclusive hops out of that farm. Um, called the Quitchy Canyon Organic Hop Series. It's mainly fresh hop beers, mm. uh, which have been really well received. We donate 10% of all the proceeds back to the land um, conservancy, the Quitchy Canyon Land Conservancy. Um, and we use this to test different varieties and methodologies of hop harvesting, planting, growing, etc. And there's a lot of cool things that have come out of that for the hop farmers in Yakima. Um, the first thing we did was actually get to change the laws. Uh, FDA had a law when we started this that said you could sell beer as organic without using organic hops. Right. right. Which was bullshit because it suppressed the organic hop industry because totally. you could market something without it being really organic. Yeah. Everyone said, uh, well, there are no organic hops. Our approach was, well, there are no organic hops because there's, no <laughs> there's no driver for the economy because right. you're able to trick the customer. So there was a lot of pushback. Um, the Believe it or not, the other two breweries who were part of this, the AOGA, the American Organic Hopper Association, um, were uh, Sierra Nevada and Anheuser-Busch um, before the buyout by InBev. We kicked them off after the InBev thing. Um, since that time, we've had a hard time getting other breweries to join, join AOGA, um, but Christian at Hub yeah. um, had, was... most committed uh, organic brewers. Yep. Christian is a leader in many ways. Um, and uh, Hub came on probably in year three or so, three or four. Um, and, you know, is, is con continues to be a, a great leader in our industry, I think, in, uh, on the side of organics. But <clears throat> that's, for us, fostering that uh, organic hop industry is part of that triple bottom line, feeding our environment. Uh, it's a big part of how we put our energies. Um, and now we're looking to expand that acreage. Uh, there are a lot of other parts of it. Um, Part of it was also to prove terroir and hops. Mm -hmm. um, if you've ever had our Koichi Canyon Organic Series, uh, it's an easy thing to prove to you by having a beer with Citra and Simcoe from Koichi and Citra and Simcoe from anywhere else. Right. And I, will, I won't say, I'll just show you. Mm -hmm. They're vastly different. Um, part of it's organic, uh, and part of it's the locality. Um, 
and that you know for us proves to well. We have a lot of science behind it too, but um, we're I, looking I to expand that. Earlier on, we uh, interviewed uh, Tom Shellhammer, the ops researcher oh, last year, and he yeah. uh, he talks a little bit about his research where he has also pretty clearly shown that terroir effect. So yeah, yeah. he has. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Shellhammer is Shellhammer is a legend for many of us. Yeah, um, that's part of the Kawichi project. And then on the grain side, we were founding members with King Arthur Flower, um, Oregon State University, and Washington State University for the Cascadia Grains Project. Um, <coughs> coincidentally, if you go to our homepage, FremontBoring.com, you'll see the <laughs> event announcement about our uh, annual conference we do um, in uh, central Washington, or it's in, uh, on the coast uh, right around Olympia. Um, it's an annual grain conference from Oregon, Washington, and B.C. The idea with Cascadia is years ago it was to generate a local grains economy uh, in our three um, three states, three provinces. Or we consider it's one big ecosystem. If you look at um, west side of the Cascades, Oregon up to B.C., it's essentially one, one ecosystem, right? Similar weather, similar habitat, similar soil conditions, et cetera, similar growing conditions. So that's what we focused on. And... We were using the, um, and still work with, you know, uh, our OSU and WSU uh, grain libraries or seed libraries. Most of it's housed up here at Wazoo um, at the grain library. Uh, but um, that idea was to generate this local economy of the um, kind of the yeast team. So brewers, bakers, distillers, um, and winemakers. And the wine's a little bit attenuated there. Um, not a lot of uh, yeah. grain use there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they never like to be left out of anything because um, <laughs> they're our friends. And then uh, cheese, right? Because cheese is part of the whole you know, yeast thing. And bring that in and have this economy all um, uh, help to support this farmer staying on their land throughout the year. So if we could generate a market for local heritage grains using the resources of Wazoo and Ozu, OSU, um, then we could actually start to push them out to the folks that would use them, from the bakers to the stores to the brewers, uh, and we could generate these beers off of this project. Um, before that, it literally didn't exist. You couldn't do it because there was no there was nowhere to malt the grain. Mm -hmm. So we had to get a maltery started first, and we started working with the people who became Skagit Valley Malting Company um, years ago, uh, and they have since come into fruition as a uh, malting company. And now we have malteries. Uh, we have four, at least five, coming online soon in Washington State, a couple in Oregon and throughout the country. Um, we see helped seed this. The Hudson Valley was really strong. Uh, Andrew at Valley Malting in Massachusetts uh, was one of the leaders. Um, and we've converged throughout uh, the um, United States, and we're leading the charge right here on the West Coast. So what does that look like for your beers? Are you using grain that is coming out of this project? Yeah, we are. Um, so everything that we produce from our mixed fermentation and our small batch brewery, which is the original brewery at Fremont, what we call East, our original location, that's all local grain. So and is that 100% is that local grain. Grown in Washington. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that um, local. But we're looking for some Oregon farmers, too. Right now we're turning toward... Um, having single farmer uh, varietals. Mm -hmm. So um, we're contracting with a couple farmers to plant acreage exclusively for us with uh, certain varietals. These are all public varietals. We're not trying to right. play that A-B game. Right. Yeah. So, and this is, is just barley or barley, wheat? What, what barley and wheat. Barley yeah. and wheat. Barley and wheat, yeah. 
yeah, primarily. I mean, you could do, I guess, rye, but um, we don't use a ton of rye. Right. Um, by volume, it's barley and then some wheat. So it's barley and wheat. So, yeah. Uh, and that is the triple bottom line. That's what <laughs> no one's listening anymore. But that is, uh, <laughs> that is really what's interesting to us about this. Um, because that's part of what it is to be a brewer. If we were to erase 100 years, like when I first started, and organic beer for me and beer in general is a window into time, right? And you can step through that window and go back into time where every brewery had a malt tree on site. Every brewery had a hop field close by. Um, it's not practical anymore here for us to do that because I very decidedly, I brew in an urban environment. Right. And we made that decision to stay here, which is financially a stupid thing to do. Right. It's incredibly expensive. This is some of the most valuable property on the West Coast. Really stupid to do that here um, from a financial perspective, but I very much believe in being an urban brewery. Um, so I can't have a farm, a hop farm and a maltry and a grain fields out there, but I can have these connections and I can lease land and buy land and work with my farmers closely and help generate and instigate these economies. Um, so since we started, we have eight times more organic hops planted in Washington State. The price has tripled. It's now something you can buy almost every varietal of hops nice. uh, or produced organically because there's an actual market because people are now forced to buy organic hops. Yeah. Um, and on the malting side, when we started, there were no malting companies. There was you know, two, Andrew Head Valley out there, um, and there was a little one started in the Midwest, but there was nothing else. Was, you you ever been down in um, North Carolina was an early one yep. as well. Yeah. But maybe a year or two behind Andrea. Yep. Um, and super, super teeny like Andrea. Andrea's since grown. But yeah, practically they weren't, it was, it was, there was nothing out there. Um, and certainly nothing out here. And now we have maltries that are popping up. Our malt house is popping up all throughout the Northwest. And right. we expect them to continue. Um, as our hop fields popping up. So that's part of what we like to do is foster, use what little uh, clout we have, what little you know, audience we have um, to push that forward. Um, but we try to be savvy about it um, and leverage larger players to come into this, like working with OSU and WSU, mm -hmm. um, which I encourage you to come to our Cascadia Grains Conference this year, um, which would be really fun to see. And you get to see the fruition of a lot of this. And now we have like... We started off with maybe 90 people right. um, from all over, but now there are people coming from all over uh, the world. About 600 people will come do our all of our oh. things over a three-day period. Um, we brought Andrew out two years ago. We have different speakers. And it's phenomenal. Yeah. So. Okay, so we're going to break in now uh, and uh, taste a little of their beer. I should mention that um, uh, that recording, <laughs> unlike uh, the recording at... Um, uh, uh, in the in the in the in the brew pubs is is nice and quiet and calm. We're actually sitting on couches in front of a beautiful fire place that they've installed in the sort of uh, the uh, corporate office part of the brewery. Which, by the way, there's just extra space everywhere. <laughs> right. I mean, there's just an enormous capacity to expand. Um, so they have a space that they can live in for the foreseeable the foreseeable future. But um, but they redid the offices areas uh, and uh, they put in a nice uh, fireplace. And so we're all just it's very lovely sitting around sitting around the fire having and, having beer. And it felt a little quieter and a little bit more empty than it normally would have because they were doing uh, inventory. So, right. <laughs> you know, as we were walking through various parts, silent nothing brewery. was happening. It was just silent. Guys standing around with clipboards, like just a few people. So it was. Uh... <laughs> yeah, so it was a it was a very quiet, quiet brewery. Um, the uh, the brewery, the the new production 
brewery, as we mentioned, lacks a tap room. So uh, we went by a cooler and grabbed a few beers and drank them as we were uh, uh, recording the, the interview, um, one each. Uh, Jeff just cracked the Interurban IPA, one of their more famous beers. Very nice audio point there, beer point. <laughs> um, uh, that's one I actually had while we were sitting there because I don't think I had ever had it before, so I wanted to try it. Um, but that was the only Fremont beer that uh, I drank there and maybe the whole, the whole time in Seattle. So uh, today we'll get to drink more <laughs> same for me. Um, but then we, but then uh, he took us to uh, the all the storage facility for all their barrel-aged program, which is a pretty gigantic barrel-aged barrel aging program they've got going there. And we have uh, a couple of special beers for you that. Did, you did drink that out of a can, which I know you... I did. I didn't get to decant. Don't delight. and uh, so I was can, disappointed, by the way. Like, you're going to offer me a can. I kind of expect a glass. <laughs> <laughs> but but to, be, to be fair, there were no glass, there's no glass around. There's nothing. Yeah, it's a brewery. Uh, <laughs> it's just a brewery. Um, Ooh, see, if I had to catch it... I know, it, that's why I handed it to you. I thought I would have been able to sense this lovely aroma much better. Although I did stick my nose right in the top of the can. Yeah, that's, you got to do that. So <clears throat> so I'll say, well, Patrick's drinking... The first time I had Fremont beer was on the Beer Bible Tour when I was in Seattle at this amazing little uh, independent bookstore. And they had gotten three growlers of Fremont beer, including Interurban, uh, Pale Ale, and another hoppy beer. Uh, and so I... I I have always taken them to be masters of hops. That's kind of what I assume their their deal was. And I remember, as we and that was a, it was a great stop. It was a full house, and we were talking about beer. And it was a really well educated audience, probably the most educated audience I had mm-hmm. anywhere on my tour. And um, it's always nice so everybody could come up and have uh, beer. And we're talking about the beer as we're going along. And I, it was the first time I'd had Fremont, um, and I was incredibly impressed, which often helps the those whole things happen if you're dealing with kind of a mediocre beer when you're talking about beer then it's like it really bogs things down yeah uh that is an excellent ipa uh not ultra modern because ultra modern means like (laughs) in the last six months i mean new recipe like six months but it's uh it's a classic yeah it's uh it's it's really it is a classic it's it's very piney yep um tends toward the bitterness and it's got it's that piney resinous quality it actually mm-hmm. if if you wanted to give somebody a taste of what um i, I don't really buy the whole northwest ipa the north you know the different flavors and all that stuff but mm-hmm. but to the extent that actually functions as a real deal um this is, seems pretty northwest it yeah tastes like the great northwest it does it t- tastes like uh a classic Northwest IPA, um, and by the way, you know sometimes you get a little tired of all of the the new the newest uh, IPAs, which are all like super citrus and very juicy. Yeah, um, I do. I do like nice sort of piney, slightly floral IPA of of yore, and this one is has got a really nice bitterness balance. It's got a it's got a good bitterness bite, but nothing too abrasive. No, no, it's very nice, and the the malt base is. Uh evident but but subdued as you'd like to see it there's not a lot of caramel malt it's a little tiny bit of sweetness there just to balance everything out mm-hmm. it's I all can, in, I can in see harmony. i can see some <clears throat> hop residue and suspension so i suspect that this is uh dry hop do you know do we know this uh i, I mean I, I have no data on it but yeah it's dry it's got to be dry hop the way that smells it's got to be dry hop yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it looks uh yeah and it's a little the color po- profile is also slightly more classic it's got a little more caramel mm-hmm 
And it's it, a slightly dark golden color. Yep. Yep. That's a really excellent beer. I liked it then. I like it even more now that I can drink it out of a glass. I know. I it, can see it. I can a, smell it. It's a real... Uh, it's one of those kind of beers I like to take... It's not a sipper. It's a gulper. Which It's only 6.2, which is nice. Yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah, it um, is. It is. It's, it's got a real Moorish quality. Yeah, yeah. Like a nice big swig of that. All right. What else you got over there? Well, what I have over here. Apparently, I had no idea what I was doing when when he was offering us different beers. But I grabbed the barrel aged unicorn tears, which you grabbed because it had sparkle on the wax. <laughs> it had glitter on the wax. So <laughs> you you recently have gone. Actually, I think Ben mentioned this first. Uh, yeah, I had forgotten that he had mentioned that, but he reminded me of his yeah. tweet. Uh, after I, I sort of dissed him on the pro tip at uh, um, uh, Holy Mountain. Holy, thank you. I was about to say something with an anchor again. <laughs> <laughs> Holy anchor. Uh, Windy City Pies around the corner from, from uh, Holy Mountain, uh, also Ben's pro tip. Uh, he mentioned that he's t- he's ready to be done with waxing bottle tops and uh, and this one not only has a wax bottle top uh but glitter on glitter. top of the wax but it's appropriate because it's unicorn tears unicorn, unicorn tears, tears is a is a collaboration between fremont brewing and perennial oh wow yeah and i'll tell you it's not just it's it's imp- <laughs> by the way i will say that matt sort of had a little glint in his eye when when he he described it. It's imperial oatmeal milk stout with cherries aged in bourbon barrels. <laughs> I think they were definitely trying to go over the top. They were trying to. There's the the concept of the whale, the, <laughs> the, the thing you try to get, which unicorn and whale are pretty similar names, and it seems like they were they were whaling that thing up as much as they could. He said, "Keep it under wrap because the geeks will freak out." So f- start freaking out because I'm about to open this sucker. <laughs> yeah. Here we go, unicorn tears. Uh, this was a 2017. I'm not sure how many years they've done it, or if this is just a one one off. Uh, so while you're doing that, I'm going to read from a Paste magazine article today, just ooh, today, today, uh, where they did a roundup of. Um, oh my god! Uh, <laughs> I haven't even poured this out. And, okay, aromatic. <laughs> yeah. So Paste did this uh, barley wine roundup, and um, Fremont finished first and fourth in their blind tasting. Very nice. That's quite. I'm surprised at uh, the effervescence in an imperial stout. It's yeah. usually a little lower. It's diminishing very quickly, as you might expect. Um, and they write, There is no other brewery in the United States we've praised so consistently and so vociferously for their barrel-aged beer than Fremont, and it would appear this isn't uh, about to stop now. These guys get it, period. So, uh-oh, and then it continues. They Every beer, barrel-aged beer then make nails a perfect balance between huge expressive flavors, balance, and irresistible textures. So, this is their thing. With with that, I, I I had I had always just long thought of them as an IPA house, and wasn't even aware of this. Though uh, Matt did mention a, a few of his beers that are extremely well loved on the rating sites. Yeah, we also he also the other beer I have here that I'm not going to open because I just we just can't drink that much big beer uh, is Bee Balm. Yes, because. Unlike our last podcast, it's the middle of the day here, and we still have stuff to do. So, yeah. so this is a verb. <laughs> Drinking the forty-four bomb. ounces of fourteen percent beer is not happening. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Bee Bomb is their classic. I'm sure all Seattleite beer geeks know all about the Bee Bomb. Bee Bomb is their bourbon barrel aged winter ale that they do every year. I think 
uh, I have a 2016 here, but but that's that's not what we have in, on offer right now. What we have on offer is the 2017 Unicorn Tears. So here we go. Jeff. All right. I think I'm getting drunk just smelling just smelling this. Mm. I'm really surprised by the effervescence. Wow. It's all roast. There's no there's no cherry in the nose. Uh, there's a lot of cherry on the. T- well, I should, I'll shut up and let you taste it. <laughs> see, see if old man Allworth can taste those cherries. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, the cherries are there. <clears throat> they sure are. I will say, as I think I've mentioned on the, the podcast, but these aren't my favorite beers. I'm, I'm, I'm an old man. I like weak. I'm, I'm too weak for these things. They're they're too much um but i really appreciate them uh this one that's pretty darn good i know <laughs> that's what i've been waiting <laughs> um this one i'm i, I was not prepared to like part of these because i think matt the glint in his eye and the sort of going for more of everything trying to make it as sort of over the top as possible <laughs> i kind of expected a little too much but um this is actually quite an excellent beer and sort of yeah the the cherries are quite a quite a nice addition because so it's it's the the imperial stout you expect so very uh very thick and a lot of roastiness so the way that they've it's not a sweet imperial stout it's quite a bit of roastiness but then the cherries are tart Mm -hmm. so they add some acidity and they seem the at least that acidity gives the perception of thinning it out a little bit like cutting through that that thickness and that sweetness and there's a lot of bourbon um uh, aroma on the nose but uh it's very subtle on the tongue which That's is right. usually the, the the kiss of death for me when it's when there's too much bourbon in the beer yeah um i find it overwhelming and distasteful uh, but not at all in this case and it's this is brewed with oatmeal and i can i can uh taste the oatmeal as well and how um uh the mouthfeel it gives the very smooth and it is velvety and velvety mouthfeel so uh, wow, <laughs> that's really good. Now I kind of get it. Yeah. Now I see why the beer geeks are going crazy. This is uh, this is a pretty kick-ass beer. Yeah, and um, it's a 2017, but it's boy, mm. it's ready to drink now. It's uh, you, uh, you wouldn't need to put any age that's on. That's a good thing. point. Yeah, very good point. Mm. Wow. All right, so I I, I get it. It's glitter <laughs> glitter worthy. Glitter <laughs> worthy. All right, Fremont. Good job, guys. Uh, well, now I really look forward to this uh, this bebo. We'll have to to choose a moment to to crack that i know you're gonna have to somehow finish this bottle because i'm gonna leave and you can't dump it so oh no it's because it's, I beca- think I'll, it's I think, incumbent on you to i think i can manage <laughs> i think i'll find a way all right <laughs> <laughs> all right uh so that's just a little t- uh, a couple tastes of uh of fremont beer um by the way i was in the uh, Belmont Station, as I mentioned in the previous pod, looking for Seattle beers, and they have quite a few Fremont beers there, including, I believe, uh, at least one barrel-aged beer, although he wasn't um, uh, paying close enough attention to tell you which. Mm-hmm. But uh, good selection around the Portland area for the Portland listeners. And they do have a giant, in that in that new brewery, they have a giant barrel room, which has yes. uh, lots and lots. He actually said at some point the number they had, which is going to elude my brain, but... Um, <clears throat> I don't know, but it's, it's like a thousand barrels or something like that, maybe. Sh- yeah, I mean it's a huge space, and <laughs> the barrels took up a, a nice little chunk. But there's still so much more room. We we were one little anecdote. We were walking through, and as we mentioned, it was inventory day, so they're inventorying the barrels as well. 
And so we're just kind of walking around uh, between the rows of barrels, and all of a sudden this uh, brewery worker pops out <laughs> from the middle, <laughs> right in the middle of our group, oops, yeah. uh, with a clipboard. Uh, he had been climbing through the barrels, making sure he counted everything proper, properly. So, uh, All right, well, so let's get back to our, uh, our interview with, uh, uh, with Matt. All right, let's do it. Uh, can I flip around to the yep. to the demand side because you you made the decision to stay in uh, a really expensive urban area. So how important do you think it is in terms of connecting with your customers? Which I imagine you're still doing a large share of your sales in the Seattle area. Uh, in Washington State, yeah. In Washington State, yeah, yeah. But definitely, you know, uh, the policy, the the idea has always been to spiral out from the mm-hmm. brewery. Yeah. So you want the strength of your sales to be, um, I do, close to home, yeah. and then spiral out. Do you think but it's important yes. that the customers identify not just a, a name, Fremont, but more than that, a, a, a location, a, mm-hmm. a, a personal story, a, a philosophy? All of the above. Yeah. yeah, I think all of the above. Um, first of all, it starts with beer. They identify the quality sure. of the yeah. beer and they like it and the variety and what you, the integrity you put into that. Mm-hmm. They want to associate with that. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's part of it. Um, I don't think it's necessarily critical uh, at least in our market here in Washington um, the number one you know beer in Washington State is from Oregon it's the shoots right um, so I don't think that's you know you can't make that argument that it has to have that you know neighborhood thing associated yeah. with it um, it's certainly a strong part of it um, but part of it for me is uh, I just believe in um, urban areas being centers of manufacturing mm-hmm. and uh, stubbornly my wife and I are unwilling to give up Seattle as a manufacturing community so she sits on the Manufacturing Industrial Council, mm-hmm. um, sits on the Government Affairs Committee for the BA nationally, um, and works at a lot of different levels in government agencies uh, to push for the, uh, the at least the retention of our industrial boundaries, production boundaries, um, zoning boundaries. Uh, what we would really like to see is an expansion of the boundaries um, so we have more blue-collar jobs in, uh, in cities. Everyone talks that bullshit game about, oh, we're like small business and working class jobs, and like, yeah, fuck off. Why are you getting rid of the industrial zones to build a condo, man? We need housing, but get rid of the single family housing, build more, you know, all around the city, and have more uh, expansion, have an expansion of industrial zones, and then you're going to actually see people with working class jobs in your cities. Um, It's a lot better than just bitching and moaning about it. We actually decided to do something about it. That's that activism thing. Yeah. Stupid from an economic perspective, <laughs> since this property is three to four times what it would cost us to go to the suburbs and build out there. That's um, the thing that I would like to talk to you about. I thought Patrick might ask this question, but he didn't. We talk uh, on our podcast a lot, because Patrick has pointed this out, that <clears throat> brewing uh, beer is a heavy uh, product and it's expensive to make, and so uh, scale of efficiency, what, what is that? Efficiency, efficiency scale, scale. Economy of scale. scale. Yeah. is really important. <laughs> Because you're trying to always reduce the cost, and you've talked about how expensive this location is, how expensive, how you know you're paying your employees more, um, you're giving beer and money away, so you're doing all these things, which doesn't seem very efficient. So how do you, uh, you know, not everybody else is doing those things, the same thing. So how how do you continue to be successful when your costs are higher that way? Keep throwing money away. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, we've done it since day one, so it's not really size. Um, people said that, you know, when we were 1,000 barrels, they said it when we were 5,000 barrels. Like, oh, you can only do it because you're 5,000. You can only do it because you're 1,000. 
now it's you can only do again. We're now forty-five times or something like that. Yeah, that's um, no, I don't believe that. It's you do it because you bake it into your business from day one. It's part of your bottom line. So you just that's not profit that you get to take, mm-hmm. and you just take less money. It's, it's a really simple thing. At the end of the day, <laughs> you only have so much money that it, you know is uh, spread around for um, wages, including the owner's wages, um, and you know it's just baked into the business. It's like a utility bill, um, or paying your grain bill, or for your hops. It's just you bake it in from day one, so you take it off of that, you know, what it could potentially be my pool. And yeah, and then you hope that. Uh, it works for everybody. Um, so, I so don't know. It's fun coming to work. I'll tell you why it works. Um, you know, I've been the lowest paid employee. My, I've only started to, like, really increase my wage over the last couple of years. Um, but coming into work, and I definitely live in one of the shittier houses that people <laughs> live in in the city. Um, but, you know, it's starting to change. There's, we're bigger now, so we can actually take some money for ourselves. Um, and that is starting to change, which is good. Uh, but um, coming into work and working here, it's almost Christmas. We're doing inventory, so you don't see a lot of the folks here. But the thing that really works here um, is working with this team. It's an amazing thing to work around people who are passionate, who are invested, uh, who are smart, who could resilient, who can get a job anywhere else. Um, and there's no amount of money that can compensate for that. Uh, working with some of the best people around is... <coughs> It's incredibly rewarding, and we're really dynamic. We do a, we shift really fast. We do a ton of different things. Uh, it's a very sophisticated back-end business um, and a ton of different projects. And having this team be able to shift but also like that shift, they like to be very dynamic. Um, I don't know. It's fun. It's rewarding itself to, be, to watch people come in and being the only dad when I started, the only one who owned a home and the only parent. And to watch nine years later, having almost a third of my workforce, you know, parents owning homes, investing in their communities, and they're able to do that because, you know, they work at Fremont Parade. That, and that's that makes us feel really rich. So I may drive a you know ten year old truck, which I love, but <laughs> and you know have holes in my wall at home. But um, yeah, that makes us very wealthy, Sarah and I, uh, for our values. So you're we're sitting in people can't see this, but it's a very large new building you have. You're ha- yeah, you moved into this building in 2013, is that how you said? Uh, no, let's see, 2016, 2015. Uh, 20 2016 you moved in, you started in 2015, that's what you said. I'm, I personally moved my office here in 2015. Right, so yeah. uh, you're making 45,000 barrels of beer. This facility clearly has the capacity to produce more beer than that. What, yeah. what, what, what are the, like, look out five, ten years, what do you hope will happen with Fremont Brewing? Uh, that's a good question. I hope that we continue to make beer that we're all proud of. I hope that our um, employees continue to be a priority that we're taking care of. I hope that our industry doesn't consolidate so much that we can stay competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't have deep pockets. It's I compete against Heineken and, and Anheuser-Busch right here in my neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and it's very much intense competition. We're competing against, um, you know, equity firms and extremely wealthy investors from other breweries, which never existed when we started Fremont. The idea that you could start a brewery and sell and actually make money (laughs) in this industry was ridiculous, beyond stupid, um, when we started. It just, it wasn't done. Um, 
now we compete with those people in the marketplace. I hope that we can stay competitive. Um, and really, I you know, that's probably the biggest hope. I hope that beer as craft beer community tends to continues to offer more and better beer to their customers. Um, that we see more and better breweries. I mean, everyone talks about the number of breweries. I want to, we're going to see ten thousand breweries. I want to see ten thousand breweries. I want to see ten thousand breweries across this country making good beer, but doing it in a way that's responsible for their uh, communities and their environment. Um, to me, there's not much benefit in craft growing. If we have companies that are just making money, then we become just like any other shitty part of the economy. You know, it's like, it's rapacious. It's, I, I don't, it, it takes away what the vital element of craft was that I valued, um, and many of us valued, which was craft is something that gives back. You give back to your employees, you give back to your community, and you have relevance outside of trading. There are a lot better ways to make money, um, I, you know, than doing manufacturing with all this competition. Um, Shell also an insurance company. Uh, <laughs> that's a much better way to do it. Um, or going to politics. But uh, I hope that craft continues to uh, evolve with the uh, appropriate values that helps us get here. Um, and we aren't just a bunch of companies owned by mega nationals uh, making a ton of money. But uh, it's, it's a strange time right now. As far as what we're making, I don't know. Right. <clears throat> I wouldn't even... I never think volume. The volume is driven by our customers. Uh, I'm trying to ramp down production. We did a 40% growth this year. Um, I wanted 25. We did 40, and that's wonderful. So you made 45 last year, and then you added 40% on to that this year, or uh, you'll make 45 this year? We increased our production 40% from 2016 to the end of 2017. Yeah. So that's a great... Um, that's a great amount of growth. It also costs a lot of money to be able to make those investments yeah. um, in tanks and canning lines and equipment and all that stuff. So I'm trying to ramp growth down a little bit um, so you know we don't have to spend so much money on equipment every year. Right. So it limits the things that we can do. Yeah. Yeah. Anything more, Patrick? Do you have another question? All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and showing sure. us this cool brewery. Sure. And uh, It's a lot of fun. Best of luck to you. I have one question. Okay. If yeah, I can fine. ask one question to you guys. Sure. All right. Um, so we get asked all the time, like, where do you see craft going? You know, how does your beer, you know, fit in, et cetera? Um, and part of that, I think everyone thinks of, you know, time and stasis. Like, time is just sitting still. And um, I'm always curious about, you know, the idea of a, a blog. Uh, you guys are doing a podcast right now. It's a new term. It didn't exist. Well, I think we're all roughly of the same age. Um, the prime of our lives. <laughs> uh, podcast, blogs, this is crazy. It didn't exist. It was, it was a brand new thing. Do you, what do you see the evolution of the podcast and the beer blog, which has been so instrumental, I think, I would argue, for the craft beer movement to give people like me some place to actually have an audience for the dedicated. Um, where do you see this going? Do you see... What's the next thing, or do podcasts and beer have a future? I mean, so I've, I've written about beer for a long time, mm -hmm. and uh, I started and out writing. authored quite a few books. Yeah, I've written some books. Um, and when I started out, I was, I, you, you probably don't know this, but I started out in uh, Portland writing for Willamette Week, which is the all-weekly. Yeah. So old journalism, the old journalism model, and now it's evolved. Um, but... If you look at the history of uh, media, it kind of follows these patterns where uh, 
there's a push there you know there's three players there's the reader there's the write there's the content producer and then there's the publisher and these right. things get these things kind of get turned around over time and every time you have a new technology it scrambles that equation and uh, it, it allows more access on one side or less access on another and right now it allow you know this has been a good time for for uh, in terms of being able to access to cut out the uh, <laughs> I'm looking at Ben now to cut out the uh, publisher uh, and get directly to consumers or to readers that that's you know the modern time has done that on the other side what we've seen is uh, when you take out the editors and the publishers you take out this layer of quality control so yeah there's a lot yeah. of crap out there so Okay. Uh, Patrick and I, when we started this, we knew that our production values were going to be crappy and we would not be very professional in terms of that side, but we hoped that our content would be interesting and that we could bring something to the table that maybe, you know, we couldn't, but other, you might not find elsewhere. So. Yeah. Well, what excites me is that the, that the barriers to entry are so low that you can now tell stories that you could not before and you can reach an audience not before. and. And you reach a really micro audience, which you could argue, I suppose, on a national scale, at least to tribalism. But at least in like things like uh, the craft movement, I think is really vital. You're able mm -hmm. to tell the stories and reach the people who are interested and and create communities around things like craft beer. Um, so that's what's kind of exciting to me. And for me, uh, my interest was entirely sort of pedagogical for a long time. I used craft beer as interesting uh, examples in my in my in my classes and uh, talk about economies of scale and you know the big tanks you have out here on the other side of the window here. Uh, uh, but it's just a way, be, and, 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 and that was a way to connect. So just sort of the idea of connecting to people who, are, who, who share this um, is a really exciting aspect of modern you know, uh, uh, information technology. Yeah, I think you ben, can draw. Is it ben from Beer Advocate. Yeah, yeah I think uh, Jeff, if we're using your your three players sort of construct, I think you could draw an analogy uh, that's fair between the three players in the beer world, with a brewer, the distributor, and the drinker. Um, and uh, I would view a you know a sort of DIY podcast or a blog or you know I think blog is. Blogs have become much more sophisticated, even without the uh, editor's uh, help, <laughs> such that it is. Um, but I think that, um, in, in my view, the advent and the rise of tap rooms at breweries is analogous to what, what blogs and the, the smaller content producers are doing in the media world. And, um, you know, there's an opportunity both for the tap room in the blog uh, now uh, or podcast or whatever you're doing you know video series YouTube series that didn't exist before and there's an audience a more specialized um, you know super curious audience that perhaps you know was more nascent ten years ago or something like that um, so I think yeah the landscape has has changed uh, quite dramatically for for both beer and you know, the people who are covering it, so to speak. You think we're going to see consolidation, like with Beer Advocate? You know, Ray Beer, for example, which is very different from Beer Advocate, but obviously it was sucked up by the machine. Um, uh, we are seeing consolidation of like traditional old media, and right. I think that, frankly, to me, uh, print is going to continue to decline. I've worked in print my whole life, yeah, and 
So for 20 years, approximately, people have been telling me print is dead. Um, but I think that uh, we're actually uh, much, much closer. Closer to the end. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I see it happening in a way that seemed sort of science fiction-y or something 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I do think consolidation and, um, you know, just the, the lack of relevance of some of the old media, not, not necessarily in uh, any one sector of the very broad publishing world, but I think it's going to happen, and I think, you know, that's good or bad, you can take both views, but then it also leaves a lot of room for little guys to mm -hmm. uh, fill gaps and serve needs, because people are still going to want information. They just want it differently, or they want it more personalized, or what have you. Right, more specialized. We've always seen ourselves uh, as part of the craft print industry as like the Rebel Alliance. You know, <laughs> like, we're not the biggest, we're not the best, we're not the coolest, we're not the best looking. Um, but you know, we're just this small band of dedicated people, that spark in the universe, um, you know, that is you know kind of fighting against this this wave, um, and the wave is pushing back in a mm -hmm. big way right now. Um, consolidation, all of our industries, I think. So, well, to answer your last question, I hope that we're all here five years from now, <laughs> <laughs> and this the Rebel Alliance still stands. Yeah, yeah you'll be here. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm. I think I'm more hopeful about all that stuff. I think that it, it goes through cycles, and the the thing of uh, once you have a lot of consolidation, uh, it leads to a kind of monoculture and lowest common denominator stuff, yeah. which leads to revolution because people get tired of that. So you see yeah. this 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 cycle sure. of uh, yeah, and I think it is definitely the case that we're headed towards a cycle of consolidation, but it's that's not the final stage. So. Yeah. And, and there's always winner. And there's always people who survive even through those. So, yeah. um, you know, breweries that are strong and robust and have a good sense of what they're they're doing. And if they're mission driven, like your brewery, I think that gives them a, a whole other reason for existing and another reason for kind of competing and, and gives them strength in the marketplace. That probably, if you're just you know trying to make it to that buyout, you may mm -hmm. have a different kind of goal. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm I'm pretty hopeful. I think pa actually it's a theme on the po podcast that Patrick and I are both pretty hopeful. And, uh, you know, it's it's clear that there's more more uh, more diversity in, in in the beers that are available now than in the history of the world. You can, you know, it's incredible. You can go and yeah. go down to a tap room now and, and taste beers that was not that would boggle the mind of anybody else. So it's scary. Yeah. Things are changing. There is some consolidation, but obviously things are good. So. Yeah, we're, we're pretty hopeful. I'm always hopeful, personally. <laughs> I'm very, very hopeful. I mean, it's a better world. Yeah, I think by and large. Um, the neighborhood tap room, the local brewery, the pub, you know, the local as it's called. Yeah. Um, that to me is the salvation. Totally. You know, we're going to see more and more and more of those, um, which probably goes directly against our self-interest because you know, <laughs> as we get larger, we're no longer with it. But um, yeah, I think it's good overall. And personally, as someone. Uh, my local was bought out by Anheuser Busch. I had a Elysium group up around yeah. the corner from my house, right? Um, which sucks. That one hurt. Yeah, that one hurt. Um, yep, it reminds me of one of the favorite quotes of Dick Cantwell, one of the founders of the brewer and um, friend from Elysium, who dissented on that vote to sell the company to Anheuser Busch. Um, we used to go lobby together uh, from DC and down here and whatnot, and. 
Dick's standard thing was, you know, breweries, craft, the craft brewing industry is great for the economy because we're beautifully inefficient. <laughs> <laughs> so it takes us 10 employees, what it would take to do, right. <laughs> it would take a large brewer, one employee, right? right. And that's great for the economy. That's why you should invest in craft brewing because it's good for your local economy. That's true. Beautifully that, inefficient. That's great. Thank God for that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, and uh, best of luck to you. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Bye, Cheers. guys. Bye, Birvana. All right. So that uh, was our interview with Matt Lincecum of uh, Fremont Brewing Company in Seattle, Washington. Thanks, Matt. That was cool. <laughs> yeah, that was actually a really nice, a really nice visit. Uh, we appreciate uh, spending so much time with us and showing us all around the new brewery. It's very impressive. Um. All right, so uh, that's the end of our podcast as well. I will. Uh, there at the end of the thing we were talking about, the size of his brewery, and he meant he made that uh, mention, which I didn't come back and touch on about um, Deschutes being having the best selling beer in Washington State, and um, I didn't get re- really get to ask him this, but I was wondering, I wonder if in the back of his mind he'd like to be the, you know, the kind of the Deschutes of. Uh, Washington. Washington needs a big kind of flagship brewery, the, a pace-setting brewery. Fremont does seem like it may be the one to break out and do that. So I wonder if that's a, a goal of his. Yeah, he didn't really want to want to talk about growth projections and future and world dominance and all that. Right. And I don't expect that that's really in his mind too much. But you invest in a big facility like that, especially you know you've pre-invested in room to, for growth. I mean. And I think that it, it's weird when a when a state doesn't have its own big kind of national, you know, or regional brewery, um, and or it's especially weird that that Washington, which has had uh, Red Hook and, and Fremont, or Red Red Hook and uh, Pyramid, right. doesn't have one. So yeah, it's, and even Elysian is now. So I think that they're poised. Yeah, to be poised. that to yeah. be that sort of flagship Washington brewery. If they double in size from here, they're probably they're probably going to be that brewery. So. Yeah, I kind of like to see it. Um, I'd like to see somebody. We we're imbalanced here in the Northwest. All the all the big breweries are in Oregon. I would like to see one pop out and be a kind of a, a big, nice national, you know, leader uh, in the in craft brewing uh, and have national attention yeah. from Washington. Absolutely, so. why not them? Yeah, so uh, no no pressure, Matt. But um, you know, yeah. there's something to think about. Well, it's and it's uh, you know. It's commendable. It is not easy to live your ideals when you're a business person in a in a business that's not, you know, a super high margin business. Right. Um, and he has very strongly held beliefs and believes in sort of the social purpose of his company, not just the not just the the, the business purpose. Um, right. So I can understand why he's you know he's reticent to to talk too much about expansion and growth. Um, but on the other hand, you know that the bigger you are, the more people you can employ, the more opportunities you can uh you can offer and the more good you can do potentially if that's if that's what uh you're into so it was really interesting to hear him him talk about that philosophy and and i appreciate it Um, yeah it's interesting because you know i teach these classes and and we and we as a as a uh, as a default i'm very very explicit about that but we assume that companies are profit maximizers um which is a good assumption for most companies but i mentioned only in passing like you can maximize other things. You can be a nonprofit. You can maximize. You might want to, you know, you might be a closely held company. What you really care about is 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 a reputation for quality, and you'll give up profits or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is another another case in point where uh, you can do this, um, 
And if you're not too highly leveraged, you can probably continue to live with your ideals. But it's always it's a it's a struggle because the more you leverage yourself, the more you get outside investors, the more that they want returns first, and then all the social stuff later. And from my side, I always look at things from a cultural perspective, kind of a historical cultural perspective. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the craft beer uh, industry and where it developed in the United States, it always developed first in places that had historical uh, brewing, mm -hmm. you know, big big breweries right. that that preexisted. That's why <clears throat> uh, the the West Coast was a leader. You had Anchor, which was really this inspiration for everybody down in San Francisco. You had Weinhardt's and Rainier and. Uh, the Northwest, you had things like Yingling and uh, uh, Rolling Rock in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, in, in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and is, is, is yes, yeah, I'm right. Yingling is from Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, yeah, I think yeah, so, right. yeah. So Pennsylvania had these the, kind of classic places. Uh, New Glarus sprouted up in a place that had Miller and Pabst and mm -hmm. Lineys, and so like you know, there's a way in which. Um, your your identity as a brewing state is really pegged in some ways to uh, your big your big leader, and uh, it is weird. I guess I just as I our, during our trip, it was just weird to me that, that Washington, that I consider this great uh, brewing state, does not have that kind of leader. It's kind of always yeah. been uh, rattling around the back of my head, and just listening to that interview again reminds me of that. And I really feel like uh, it would be nice to see. Um, I think I think Washington's identity will be incomplete as a brewing state until it has a bigger uh, national leading craft brewery. So. Yeah, the, the 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 history of Seattle from being a craft beer leader with very early yeah breweries like Red Hook, uh, obviously, uh, but then then going through this real fallow period, which is quite remarkable, mm -hmm. um, where there was very little going on, and Fremont came along. By the way, I also mentioned that we. Our experience in talking to a number of different brewers and um, around town was that uh, it's still a pretty close knit community, and they're very um, gracious uh, with each other and uh, help each other out. I know that uh, uh, Matt and Fremont helped out the guys at Cloudburst uh, a bit as well. Um, you mentioned that, so um, so that's that's pretty cool. So I think that there's a there's a, a real uh, buzz going on right now and a lot of new great breweries coming in. I expect many more soon. And if Washingtonians get a little bit more parochial, there's a lot of yeah. a lot of runway yeah. because it's yeah, twice, forget, the, forget the Oregon beers. Come on. It's twice as big and so you can afford to have one big decent craft brewery there, you know, that, that sells uh two, three hundred thousand barrels. Mm -hmm. Um it's ten million people. I mean it's a decent sized state, yeah. so well it's like I said before, I think there's an ecosystem that happens. So you have a big brewery like Fremont and they train a lot of people and those people start populating other breweries, go off start their own thing as well. Right. Uh, and it just it just creates this uh this whole industry um, locally, and uh, and I believe especially in craft beer, that also helps create its own demand. So, anyway, uh, good good times. Uh, this is the end of our Seattle podcast. So, um, any f final thoughts about our trip to Seattle? No, I just I'm so happy that we did it, and uh, it was I want about to thank, time. Yeah, it was about time, and I want to thank everybody who uh, made it possible, and you know, extended invitations and showed us around the breweries. Uh, it actually takes time and and doesn't there you know it's not like they're going to get a lot of uh, bang on their investment 
<laughs> yeah. So I do appreciate when they take an hour or two out of their time to show us around. That's right. And it went so well that I uh, I hope that we can do this again soon in the future. So please send us your suggestions about uh, cities that you think we might might be worth visiting. That's right. Maybe we'd like spread out. Maybe San Francisco next. San Francisco or, or Bend Van- or Vancouver, BC. Is Vancouver, BC. A lot, yeah, of stuff, yeah. a lot of stuff going on up there. So these are all uh, all possibilities uh, locally. And then uh, if we get really ambitious, we might even jump on a plane. And who knows where we'll go? Yeah. Right. We have to, we have kitted around about going to Asheville, but I don't know. That's a long ways. Yeah, I gotta know what's that's the right a, that's what, a, what's the right time of year to visit. It's in the hills, right? So probably in the summer it's not so bad. I hear I hear horse. I have a good friend who who uh, who uh, moved who grew a sell, up a Selwoodian here. Yes, Selwoodian. Yes, who grew who grew <laughs> up in North Carolina and moved away because he couldn't stand the the heat and humidity and loved the Pacific Northwest because of the lack of. Yeah, let's go in the winter. Why not? Let's. Uh, <laughs> or a late spring. Well, yeah, you got to you got to hit the sweet spot. I don't know. It's in the it's in the hills, so uh, I think the idea is that it's um, uh, less humid and hot than other parts of North Carolina. But I don't know how. I don't know what that is in absolute terms. Relatively, I believe it, but absolute, who knows? While, while we're quickly, while we're uh, uh, have our wish list out, you know, one place I didn't get to go for my book tour, and that I really wanted to go, and I've never been to, is Texas. And I really like to go to Austin, so maybe we should put Austin on there too. They've got a pretty good beer scene. Yeah, I've only been to Dallas and to San Antonio, so Austin would be fun. Maybe uh, see if we can find some good beer down there, and yeah. not go. Not definitely not go in the summer. I'm sure there'll be good food. Yeah. All right. Uh, some barbecue. So if you were about how to get in touch, uh, you can get in touch with us through Jeff. Uh, and Jeff, what's the email since I don't have it in front of me? Jeff at beervanablog.com. Beer, I think I would have done that better after all. <laughs> <laughs> I've been uh, drinking. I love this uh, this this unicorn tears, and I've been drinking it. It's going to my head. Good drink a lot. Don't leave too much for me. <laughs> I'll be able to get up tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, you can also find us at the Beervana Blog Facebook page. It's a good, another good way to leave comments. Uh, and uh, we tweet. Uh, Jeff tweets at Beervana, and I tweet at Beernomics. And give us a rating on iTunes. We oh, continue good. to encourage That's everybody right. to do that so that uh, this juggernaut continues to yeah. follow us. Away. Follow us on SoundCloud. Right. Do Subscribe all to us on iTunes. Rate us on iTunes. Anything else you're supposed to do? I don't know. That's That seems good. Put a bumper sticker on your car. That That's says, right. I love Tell all your friends. <laughs> all right. So uh, thanks for getting in touch. I hope you enjoyed uh, our series on uh, Seattle beer. Hey, we got a cheers! Cheers, Jeff! Cheers, Patrick!